0: Good morning, everyone. Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 10, verses 32 and through all the way through 45. You're now the reading of God's holy and inspired word written for us. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? He said to him, Grant to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many." Last week at our church picnic as the event was coming to a close, I noticed that a few of Liberty's children had organized themselves a thumb wrestling tournament. Two rounds to see who the Liberty thumb wrestling champion would be. Uh, There was no physical prize, only bragging rights to see who was number one, who was the greatest. As the winner emerged, You could see the look of disappointment on those who did not win and the sheer look of glory on the winner. And as I was watching this tournament, it struck me that even for children, we can see this inner desire for greatness, a desire for significance. I don't think this is something that we outgrow in our adulthood. As children, this manifests in ways like wanting to to win games Uh, to be the best in our class but even at our age despite how old you are we all strive to attain a level of success a degree of greatness in our lives we want to be recognized in our workplaces to be promoted to a higher position we want to be the best at our craft dedicating hours a day to practicing an instrument Pouring over books and how-to videos to master a craft, whether it be gardening or baking. But what does greatness look like in the kingdom of God? What does it look like for a Christian to attain a level of greatness? It's my hope that through our text this morning in Mark chapter 10, we're going to see that greatness in the kingdom of God is attained and defined by becoming a servant. Put another way, to truly be great in the kingdom of God, we must dedicate ourselves to occupying our thoughts, our energy and our actions on what we can give and offer to others and not what we can gain. And as Mark 10 shows us what true greatness means, We're going to see that this is only achievable through our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose sole purpose and mission was to come and serve the greatest servant of them all. To that end, my sermon this morning will have two points. The servant for all and the ransom for many. The servant for all and the ransom for many. As we come to our selected portion of Mark, we see that following Jesus' encounter with the rich young man, Mark describes that Jesus and his disciples were on the road going to Jerusalem with Jesus, walking ahead of them. Here Mark includes a small detail that is uh, left out in the other gospel accounts that his disciples were amazed and that those that followed were afraid Oh, so amazing and fearful about this account. What is so significant? What's going on here, right? Because we can tell he's just walking. They're walking to Jerusalem. So is it seeing Jesus walk and they whisper to themselves, oh my gosh, Jesus could take gold at the speed walking competition at the next Olympics. He is scary fast. I don't think it's Jesus' sheer speed that struck awe and fear in the hearts of those who followed. Instead, his disciples and his followers recognized that Jesus would find great opposition in Jerusalem. They have witnessed Jesus in his ministry correcting, confounding, and frustrating Pharisees and scribes. And now, as they look ahead to their destination... They're amazed and fearful, confirming their feelings of fear and awe. Jesus explains to the 12 what was to happen in Jerusalem. Verses 33 and 34, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, they will spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Here Jesus clearly understands what is to happen in Jerusalem. And he does not lose a step. He remains determined as he journeys towards this destiny. He does not delay. He does not linger. And his disciples are amazed. They must have thought, who is this Jesus who freely walks into a place filled with people who hate him, full of opposition, a place where now Jesus has confirmed he would die. After Jesus foretells his death, this is being the third time two of his disciples, James and John, approach him and ask, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Right? What, a, what a bold request. Not, not only to ask for Jesus, but to ask of, of anyone. Uh, Jesus, not in the business of writing blank checks, responds, what, what do you want me to do for you? James and John then express their desire to have a position of authority, a place of power, in order that they might share in Christ's glory. Verse 37 Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory recognizing that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Christ who would establish God's everlasting kingdom. James and John ask, when you come and establish this kingdom, when you're throned as the king above all kings, please let us sit at your right and at your left hand. You know, you can choose. You know, it can be either one of us. It's up to you, but please do this for us. This is all that we ask. Implied in their request is a desire for greatness. To be somebody of worth in the kingdom of God. In response, Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. You haven't the slightest clue as to what it means to sit where I am going to sit. Drawing from scripture, he uses two metaphors of a cup and baptism to emphasize his point. Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. To that they hastily answer, yes, we're ready. We are ready to do just that. Jesus explains that they will in fact share in his cup and baptism, but not in the way that they think. And as for sitting at his right and left hand, this was something that was settled long ago. From eternity. After hearing this, this always makes me laugh. Verse 41, it tells us that the other disciples became indignant at James and John. The reason for their anger is not stated, but in the previous chapter, we see the disciples arguing amongst themselves as to who among them was the greatest. So it's not hard to guess why these disciples were irate. Deep down, they all believed that they were the greatest, that they should be seated at Christ's right or left hand and not James and John. They deserve to have a place of power in the kingdom of God. To make matters worse, if you look at the parallel text in Matthew, Matthew tells us that James and John brought their mother along to ask Jesus for this thing cause for indignation indeed, right? You can imagine what they're saying. My goodness, you you brought your mom to ask Jesus this? Come on. We should notice here that in response to James and John, notice here that Jesus does not reprimand them for their desire to be great. Jesus knows that the desire and the pursuit for greatness is not something wrong in of itself. In fact, The desire to have our lives be something of worth, to be significant, for it not to be a waste, is actually a mark. It's actually evidence that we as people have been created in the image of God. We understand that from the time of the garden, upon perfect obedience, Adam would have progressed in such a way, symbolized by the tree of life, to enter into a heightened, greater union bond than he has ever experienced before in his life. And while on account of sin, many things in the image of God have been fallen, many have been preserved, including this desire for greatness that's in all of us. Evidence of this is all around us, from our children, wanting to play games, to be the thumb wrestling champion, to even a phenomena that we will see happen, even here in this church, in a couple of weeks when football season starts? Why do Ford sports fans, including myself, why do we choose to wear jerseys with someone else's name on the back? No one who wears a jersey really believes that they're Jalen Hurts or Joel Embiid. No one wearing these things and going to the game really thinks that they're gonna be playing in the game and participate. That they're the starting quarterback or the starting center for uh, the Philadelphia teams. But why do we do this? Why do we say things like, did you catch that game last night? Oh, we won. It was such a great game. We beat that team. I mean, we didn't play. We didn't do anything. They would have won regardless if we watched or not. We did nothing to contribute, and yet... Christians and non-Christians alike, we join in this. Why? We want to be a part of something greater than ourselves. We want to share in some degree of glory. Jesus here recognizing that seeking greatness is not something to be despised, but instead something that is actually embedded in us, something noteworthy, something praiseworthy to strive after. He uses James and John's request as an opportunity to teach. Here he corrects the disciples' notion of what it means to be great, to have position of power and authority. And he does this, very interesting, he does this by first describing how Gentile rulers consider their position of power. Verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Put another way, Jesus confronts his disciples and says, You disciples, you think that leadership and greatness in the kingdom of God is the way that these godless Gentile leaders have it. You think that ruling means that you have all this power to lord over other people for your own benefit. Here, Jesus corrects his disciples by showing them that their understanding of leadership and power has been greatly influenced by the ways of the world. They sought power to be the greatest, to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in order that they could lord that leadership over those below him. Much like the disciples, every day we also hear competing voices from this world not just about what greatness looks like, but how we ought to live, how we should speak, how we should spend our money, how we should think through issues that uh, are relevant for today. And for this reason, gathering each week on Sunday to hear the word of God faithfully preached is of utmost importance to Christians. As we gather together, we are reminded of our true heavenly citizenship. We come face to face with the truth that we exist as foreigners in a land that does not belong to us. We come each week to hear truth, a truth that cuts against the grain of this fallen and broken world. And this is what Jesus does with his disciples in contrasting the way that the Gentiles lord their authority and leadership over those below him, Jesus says, it shall not be like this among you. He goes on to say that whoever would be the greatest among you must be first be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In stark contrast to how the world considers power, greatness, and authority, Jesus presents them with the truth. You want to be the greatest? You want to be the best? You want to have power and authority to get there? You have to be a servant. Here Jesus describes that servanthood is the true mark of greatness in the kingdom of God. As Christians and as citizens of this kingdom, we strive after greatness in order that we might be able to better serve and meet the needs of those around us. In this way, the mark of greatness for Christians is confirmed when we're able to submit ourselves to one another, bearing one another's burdens with joy, focusing on what we can offer, what we can give, as opposed to seeking what we can gain from other people. Reformer John Calvin says this in reference to parallel text in Matthew, let the only greatness, eminence, and rank which you desire be to submit to your brothers and sisters, and let this be your primacy to be the servants of all. How different this looks to what the disciples thought greatness would be. This truth really turns upside down that conventional wisdom of leadership and greatness that still pervades our world today, just as it did in the time of Jesus. For us this morning, I believe the implications of Mark 10 are very clear. Greatness, first, is not to be despised, it should be celebrated, it should be prized amongst us. And yet, we remember that true greatness is attained in our service to one another, and in this way, we ought to seek ways that we can serve the church, serve one another in both formal and informal ways. This can range from getting involved with many ministries we have here at Liberty, or even something as simple as hosting someone for a meal, to listen, to pray with them, to carry with them the burdens to the very feet of our Savior Jesus, strengthening one another in Christ, praying for one another. This call to greatness is also a challenge to people who find themselves in leadership position, whether you're an elder, a deacon, a pastor. No matter where you are as a leader, the mark of greatness for your leadership ability will be seen in the ways that you care and the ways that you put the needs of others above yourself. Outside the church, our desire and standard for greatness can be a wonderful testimony for those who do not yet know Jesus as savior. For those of us in the workplaces who have direct reports, who uh, find themselves as a manager or director or in any place of power, how do you use your authority? How do you use your position? Do you use it to lord it over others? Or do you use it to better help others in need? And when I say all this, I don't mean that as a boss or as a leader, as a pastor, you should be some kind of pushover or put yourself in a position to be manipulated. But as a leader, As someone who seeks to be great in any capacity, we do so in order that we might position ourselves better to offer greater aid to those in need. So far, our text this morning has shown us what is the true mark of greatness, and that is to be a servant for all. And as we come to this understanding of greatness, we also ask this question, why is this the case? Why is servanthood the true mark of greatness? This brings me to my second and final point the ransom for many. Jesus answers the question, Why is servanthood the true mark of greatness? by describing the very purpose and life of his own ministry. He explains that for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many here in this verse Jesus explains the very heart the very soul of his mission the ultimate reason why he came to this world was to serve and from this now we can understand this amazement that the disciples had at Jesus unyielding resolve to travel towards Jerusalem in order that he might offer himself In service to us, a commitment that struck awe and fear in those that followed. During Jesus' ministry, he performed miracles, he taught many things about the kingdom of God. But we have to recognize that all of this was not to prove anything, it was actually to show and demonstrate that he is actually here to serve to offer his life as a ransom man. When we reflect on the way that Jesus describes it, notice here the title that he uses, Son of Man. It's very significant. I want to pause there for a moment because as he uses this title, Son of Man, a title that would have been recognized by those during that time who were familiar with the Old Testament, the title that we see in Daniel chapter 7, we're in a vision. Daniel sees with a cloud of heaven, there came one, Like the son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and a kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Here was Jesus, the promised king, the son of man who had all dominion of glory. A king above all kings, the one God's people had waited for to make all things right again. A king who came to serve but how the service is summed up very clearly in verse 45 to give his life as a ransom for many here in this final verse jesus gives interpretation to the significance of the death that he has predicted now three times while he would indeed die in jerusalem at the hands of gentiles his life is not taken from him he gives it. John ten eighteen. Jesus says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He freely does this for you, for all of us here this morning. And in this way, we're now able to see in a greater way the way Jesus describes his death earlier in this text. Because when we consider it, we see that it strongly resembles the Day of Atonement described in Leviticus 16, where on that day the sins of the people would be put on the scapegoat, sent away from the people of God outside the camp in order that it would die. Jesus would be that sacrifice for us. Taking on the punishment of sin, he would be sent away from his own people into the hands of the Gentiles in order that we might live. In order to pay the price of our transgressions against a very holy and righteous God, Jesus came to give his life for us. And in this way, we understand that the cup that Jesus refers to in his question to James and John is one that only he could drink. For in the Old Testament, this cup often represented God's unbridled wrath and fury. We see this throughout the prophets in Jeremiah and Isaiah, but we also see reference in Revelation, which I think illustrates it quite well, that those who would worship the beast would drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, tormented with fire and sulfur. This is a cup. Worse than anything Babylon would have experienced. Worse than anything any foreign nation would have experienced by the hand of God. A cup so great and terrible, and thinking about his own destiny, Jesus, as he prays, he's sweating blood, and he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that he was the only one who could drink this cup of fate that we deserved. But in our place, he drank deeply, a cup overflowing with punishment that should have been ours. He drank from this cup for us in order to pay the ransom and redeem us and save us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the good news of the gospel that those of us who have called upon Jesus in faith, recognizing our deep need for a savior, it has been finished. And we rejoice that we are saved by none other than this Jesus who came as the greatest servant to offer his life as a ransom in our place. This is the hope that we cling to every day and nothing else. This gives us great encouragement as we try to heed and answer this call of greatness in God's kingdom. Because who among us here, in our jobs, in our ministries, even in our life, can say yes? In my inner desire to be great, in my desire for my life to mean something, I have done so in a way Wholesale devotion to others. In serving my brothers and sisters. Seeking the needs of others before me. Because if we're to be truly honest, I think we all find ourselves, including myself, along with those disciples, arguing over another. Who is the greatest? Seeking leadership and greatness and power in order that we might lord it over others. We want that next promotion. Why? not so that we can be in a place to help those beneath us, but that we can lord it over others. Let all the people under me do all the work I don't want to do, all the the, the hard stuff. I want to lead a ministry. I want to be someone in this church. Why? Because I want people to see me. Maybe that's you this morning. Sadly, our lives, more often than we would like to admit, reflect that we seek greatness in order to have glory and honor in all the wrong ways. We wish to be served. We come together this morning and we rejoice and we worship God that our salvation is not dependent on our best efforts to seek greatness in the right way. On your ability to die to yourself and seek true greatness by serving others. But instead, we thank God that we are saved, none other than Jesus' own death, a life that he has given for us. We are saved by Jesus' life as a servant, one that ended on the cross, where he cried out, it is finished. And as we seek greatness as we seek to better serve one another better, we stand confidently in Christ's finished work. To him we cling to today and until that last day where we will behold him in his glory with unveiled faces, sharing in that glory counted as sons and daughters of God through Christ's service to us. Amen.